welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're revisiting the best TV couples of the modern era. Plus, we're joined by Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridge. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt zoller Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, everybody. Hey, Jen. <laughs> we have Jen here in person with us today, which is pretty cool. No, don't tell them our secrets. They don't oh. know I'm being beamed Ooh. in from a satellite in D.C. <laughs> no, it is nice to be actually physically here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here. And so today we were going to start things off by talking about uh, a battle that's been waging on the um, online <laughs> on Vulture.com. A war for the heart and soul of America. <laughs> so every year Vulture holds a pop culture bracket. We've done drama, the best drama, TV drama of all time. We've done comedy. Last year we did high school TV shows. Friday Night Lights won that one. As well it should have. As well it should have. And then this year was was TV couples, which has ended up being a lot more contentious than I think we yeah. thought, just because it's so subjective. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a very emotional bracket. and <laughs> <laughs> It is. We, it is. We, were fo- we, you know, we wanted to narrow our focus, so we looked at TV couples only from the past 30 years. And we were looking at a range of types of relationships from more traditional marriages to gay and lesbian re- relationships to to will they won't they's we, we had eight relationships that weren't married couples and eight relationships that were married couples yeah and I actually uh, i'm going to tell tales out of school here and say that the <laughs> editorial meeting about this bracket was a show in itself because it, it yeah. became it became like a philosophical debate yeah uh, i said that was the best work meeting i've ever participated in i think we should just do a podcast that just recaps that whole meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had taped that meeting because it was, it well, was the, good. Yeah, the, we ba- the, basic, uh, the basic issue, well, there were two. One was the question of whether um, married couples on television were categorically different from single couples who, you know, have a will-they-won't-they they thing or who break up and get back together and break up and get back together. Um, you know, if necessarily some of the core issues are different and we actually considered having two separate simultaneous brackets for married couples and single couples or doing just one or just the other. And ultimately, we decided to mix it. Matt was a big proponent of having the two brackets, as I recall. I was. I was. <laughs> although, you know, uh, with, the, with get- recognition that it would have been a lot of extra work. Yes. But however, and I think that's probably why it didn't happen, honestly. But uh, yeah, I still feel like it's apples and oranges, even more so than most brackets. I mean, it's hard enough to compare... Um, Genre shows and non-genre shows or, or three-camera sitcoms with uh, uh, single-camera sitcoms that are done without a laugh track, as we've done in the past. But I think, you know, I think married couples and single couples are just even more different. That's just my feeling. I know a lot of people disagreed with that. So Right. Well, our compromise then was to put half the bracket was married couples and half was more will-they-won't-they they type of couples. And, and that was, like any good marriage, we compromised. <laughs> we did. We did. I, I thought I was greatly at risk of sleeping on the couch for a while after the end of that meeting, but it worked out. It ultimately worked out. Uh, another second consideration was, you know, what are some very historically significant couples? You know, 
we included Brian and Justin from Queer as Folk, for example, because they were kind of revolutionary in representations of gay couples. Because this couple is predominantly, you know, white and straight Um, because those are most of the couples on television. So, you know, we wanted to show a range of different types of love. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that ended up in us having to make other considerations like cutting couples who maybe we would have put in otherwise, like Mulder and Scully. That was a big one, I think. That was a big one. That was a big one. And, you know, it's funny because the uh, when I uh, told my roommate about this uh, uh, bracket, um, he said, uh, are Crockin and Tubbs going to be in it? (laughs) 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 And he was only half joking. He was only half joking. And I was reminded of an episode. There was an episode on Miami Vice where, uh, Crockett fell in love with this woman and it was interfering with his partnership with Tubbs and it almost became this weird love triangle and there was a, a moment where Tubbs gets beaten up while he's investigating a case or something and he shows up on Crockett's doorstep basically looking like, you know, a wounded wife. You know, it's crazy. And there's a lot of, like, I think Mulder and Scully have that and I think mm-hmm. uh, Peggy and Don from Mad Men were given very seriously uh, serious consideration. Right. Even though, like, they're not a romantic couple, really, in any traditional sense. Right. But there's that sort of tension that kind of underlines a lot of what they're they're dealing with. Um, maybe that's the next bracket is buddy bracket or mm-hmm. oh, sexual tension bracket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We just get more and more specific. Well, there I, could be a whole non-sexual spouse bracket that could, you know, include everyone from Crockett and Tubbs to, you know, Peggy and Don. Right. You know, workplace spouses. Leslie Nope and Ron Swanson. There's a lot. Of, <laughs> there's a lot right. of opportunities there. Yeah. So, just you know, should we should we run through the couples that did make it? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good place to start. All right. So we had Homer and Marge from The Simpsons, which they almost got cut. America. Yeah, Jen was. Uh, I made it. I made it a very. <laughs> you made I argued. A good, you made a good uh, convincing argument. I will say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Tammy and Eric, Friday Night Lights, uh, the front runners of this bracket. Brian and Justin from Queer as Folk. Ross and Rachel from Friends, who we also had a play-in round where if there were two major couples on one TV show, they battled it out to make it into the official bracket. So we had right. Ross and Rachel versus Monica and Chandler, and our essayist for that ended up going with Ross and Rachel. Mm-hmm. Then we had Luke and Lorelai from Gilmore Girls, Tony and Carmela of The Sopranos, Cliff and Claire of The Cosby Show, Pam and Jim from The Office, Meredith and Derek of Grey's Anatomy, Lena and Steph from The Fosters, Diane and Sam from Cheers, Maddie and David of Moonlighting, Tara and Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was another play-in round. They battled it out against Buffy and Spike and Buffy and Angel. That's a surprise victory there in some ways. It was an underdog. Yeah. Yeah. And Elizabeth and Philip from The Americans, Roseanne and Dan from Roseanne, and Don and Betty from Mad Men. And so then from there, we paired them up. And in a series of essays, we kind of looked at, you know, a range of criteria. Every essayist took kind of a different ap- approach, but looking at cultural significance, how memorable they were, how enjoyable they were to watch just as a couple. Yeah, although and, I would say the thing that struck me most, and I wrote about this in adjudicating the final round, uh, ultimately the aesthetic considerations seemed secondary or barely even present 
for a lot of the people. It was something more basic that was at stake, I thought, which is which do you prefer, couples who represent something like the reality of being in a couple or people who represent something uh, kind of an idealistic or aspirational example of a couple? Right, or you know, reflective it, of your own feelings. Or exactly, your own, your own feelings mm-hmm. about love, your yeah. feelings about coupledom, marriage, uh, monogamy, everything else. Which kind of makes sense because this is so personal that people would look at it fr- through that lens. Yeah, know? yeah, and it, and it's interesting. And, you know, uh, I think more than one writer struggled with that. And, in fact, there was one who uh, chose a couple who was perhaps more dramatically interesting but essentially um, kind of negative or bad uh, and then went back and changed their minds and chose the one that oh, was yeah. a more positive example of Couple we, we had some hemming and hawing. Yeah, we had more than one person like <laughs> yeah. decide and then change their mind again and then change it back. Yes, and it, it was. It is a very maybe more personal decision in a lot of ways when you're writing these than some of the other brackets that we've done. And what I think is fun about doing any of these brackets is that when you get these matchups, it, it forces you to look at these whatever the two shows are and start finding like connective tissue between those shows that you never would have really thought mm-hmm. about, and unless you had been put in this situation. Um, so I always find that kind of fun. I, I just would like to state here that Jen uh, is, is sitting uh, uh, at the corner of this table that we're all at, and she's wearing a Riggins <laughs> Saracen 16 T-shirt. I only have a few more weeks to wear it. So <laughs> it's pretty excellent. Actually, it was funny. I was wearing it on the train this morning, and the woman sitting next to me was trying to watch Friday Night Lights on her her. Um, computer, which, of course, she was using Amtrak Wi-Fi, so good luck, lady. It didn't work out for her. <laughs> um, but, uh, I was, it, but my jacket was zipped. I'm like, should I z- unzip it? And be like, hey, look at me. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So are you saying I'm trying to sway the, the You're trying to sway the I vote? Mean, <laughs> well, the vote's already been uh, well, the, decided, just, so, you know. Yeah, I guess we should announce, you know, the winner. But first, our, let's, let's announce our, our four uh, finalists, which were Friday Night Lights, Tammy and Eric, uh, Pam and Jim from The Office, Philip and Elizabeth from The Americans, and Meredith and Derek from Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. And the winner is... Matt. It was Tammy and Eric <laughs> Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Big surprise. Which is what fa- everybody predicted from the beginning. Yes. But, but we had to think it out first. It's not like it was a, just a foregone conclusion. It, I, don't, I really think it could have gone a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it could have gone, particularly if, <clears throat> I think this is one of these cases, this is probably true to some degree in every one of these brackets, these sort of critical brackets, the early rounds, I think, determined the future course of the contest. Because it was in those early rounds that, that we saw this struggle starting to take place, where the essential question was, am I deciding, ultimately, am I deciding on life as it should be or life as it is? And one of the earliest examples of that was was the Taylors from Friday Night Lights versus Tony and Carmela from The Sopranos. And that's, you know, about as close to a perfect example of life as it is versus life as it should be that you're going to find. Like, which is not to say that every married couple has literal bodies buried somewhere like The Sopranos <laughs> do, but... Um, just that that marriage is is you know it's one of those classic marriages that is one where the couple stays together, not just because there's some attraction there, some affection, and they have kids, but because they have compelling sort of professional and financial reasons to stay together, and because the world that they're a part of demands that they stay together. Like in a weird way, it's almost like something out of an Edith Wharton novel. You know, like I mean, it's like the society. The little sub-society that they live in is determining that they have to stay together. And and it's really a very compromised marriage. I mean, it's one that's constantly, you know, you're seeing 
Tony cheats, Carmela catches him, and is about to kick, you know, threatens to kick him to the curb, though whether she would really do that is kind of debatable. And he comes back and buys her a nice piece of jewelry or a new car or a new house or something like that. And, you know, not everybody spends on the level of The Sopranos, but there's a lot of that going on in a lot of kind of marriages. And it's really just not a marriage that you would hold up as an example of, this is everything that marriage could be, (laughs) you know, whereas the Taylors, well, they won. Right, right. They won. So can you tell us a little bit about your that? So you you judged the final round between the Taylors and Pam and Jim. from I did. Yeah. What 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 swayed you towards the Taylors? (laughs) Well, it was funny because, you know, one of the raps against um, these kinds of couples, Jim and Pam and and uh, Tammy and Eric, is that they're nice. They're nice, you know, and and the struggle for television writers with characters like that is how do you make characters who are basically nice be interesting? It's a problem. It's a real problem if you don't have, you know, some kind of dramatic errors in judgment or or crappy behavior happening to keep things interesting from week to week where they're fundamentally decent people. And sometimes they screw up, you know, they stray or they think about straying, they make stupid decisions, but ultimately they apologize, they get it together, they get it on, and then next week things are back, they're kind of reset to square one, and that's the way a lot of long-term, you know, healthy relationships are. Um, And so, in a way here, what we had was, I mean, aside from occasional instances of, I think, gross um, failure to recognize the needs of the other person, the couple, like uh, Jim buying a house and not telling Pam, which they even got past that, um, you're talking about two fundamentally decent people in two sets of couples where they take each other's needs into consideration and and uh, they are doing the work. They're doing the work. They're doing the hard, daily, often unglamorous work of making this thing function. And uh, so it was like, you know, you talk about apples and oranges. This is like pie versus cake. You know, do I like pie or do I like cake? Do I like rainbows or do I like unicorns more? <laughs> you know, it's not it's it's nothing like uh, uh, well, it's nothing know? like uh, Jen's round, the semifinal round of Tammy and Eric versus Philip and Elizabeth from the Americans. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a little bit a little bit different. I mean, that was hard because. You know, we don't we don't have the full story on on Philip and Elizabeth. That show is still in progress, and I think that, um, and I think other writers, as they were judging the Americans throughout this bracket, made that point too. That it's sort of hard to fairly compare it to anything when other shows have completed and and that's still going on. Um, but I mean, for me, I, I I just felt like one of the things I was trying to think about is what felt really different um, on television at the time that it was on. And what felt refreshing in some way. And, and I felt that Tammy and Eric, just what you're talking about, like that, that niceness and showing the, the hard work of it um, at a time when we were watching The Sopranos and Mad Men and right. Breaking Bad, like it felt like, wow, this is different. This is something different from what I'm seeing on a lot of other shows in this particular moment. And so I thought that was really important. Um, so that, I mean, that swayed me. I don't know. Yeah, making decency cool is not easy to do right. for, for these TV writers. It's really, really hard to do. And I think there's a reason why you'll often see the model where there's uh, some kind of a lot of troubled or eccentric or impulsive or self-destructive characters surrounding, you know, a character or characters who are fundamentally stable. You know, and the stable characters are not necessarily the reason why people watch the show. Whereas on Friday Night Lights, it was like I felt like they were 
they were like a way station for the rest of the community. And there were so many scenes on that show where other characters would come over to their house to talk to one of them or the other of them about their problems. And in a way, they were almost like not only the parents to their own children, but the parents, occasionally the parents to everybody else around them. Right. Too. Like that's what fundamentally good people they were. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, so and Jim and Pam, I think, ultimately would have become that. Like if we could have seen them like, say, 10 years down the road, I think they would have become that. Mm-hmm. I really do. And and um, and so then I just decided on the Taylors just purely because the Taylors had been together longer. <laughs> that was it. I mean, that was ultimately what it came down to. I mean, and I could I, you know, I felt like uh, Jim and Pam's story in some way is it feels like the unaired prologue to, to Eric and Tammy Taylor's story. Mm-hmm. You know, like what 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 they're going through is something that the Taylors went through before Friday Night Lights began its narrative. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so in a sense, you could see them as like the unseen aspirational fantasy of Jim and Pam. Like ultimately, when they visualize their future, probably what they're visualizing is something close to what the Taylors have. So therefore, it's like, you know, if we were if we were doing a bracket about the greatest musicians of all time and it came down to somebody who's been doing it for 40 years and somebody who's been doing it for 20 and the talent level seems more or less equal, I would have chosen the person who's got two more decades of work, you know? Right, right. <laughs> That's what it was. It was sort of like an award for effort, I guess. <laughs> right. I mean, and I also think, you know, people talk about Tammy and Eric as being too aspirational or too perfect. And certainly, yes, I think you, it's fair to say that if you were to try to model your marriage on someone on TV, that would probably be one of your first choices. But um, but I just think the way that show is done, um, I don't think it's sugarcoating a lot of things. I think even the way they shoot that show, like the documentary style way of doing it, like it gives you the sense that you're observing something. Right. And it isn't always pretty and perfect. They get into arguments about a lot of things and uh, deal with their own difficulties. So it's not like watching, um, you know, to use another example from our bracket, like the Huxtables, where everything was, they had fights, but you always knew it was going to be, I mean, they were sitcom. It was within a sitcom kind mm-hmm. of um, format, whereas on Friday Night Lights, it was a drama, and you you were reasonably assured that they were going to be together and everything was always going to be okay. Like, Glenn was really not going to cause a problem in that relationship. <laughs> right. Um, but it wasn't like, I didn't feel like it was rose-colored glasses that, that you were looking through every No, week. they were just, like, able to speak to each other as people, which was yeah. which was so unique about it i think that that was the aspirational aspect i think i I would say there's oh sorry no go ahead yeah there was one there was one thing though there was one thing though that i do think is a major issue in their marriage and it's a major issue in a lot of couples where both people are very dedicated to their careers which is you know it's pretty clear early on that when that show begins tammy is the one who has been making most of the sacrifices with regard to where they live you know, right. they've been following mm-hmm. Eric around. Eric is a football coach, so he's moving from one football coaching job to another, and that means changing towns on a fairly regular basis, and she's been going along with it. And and there is some tension in the marriage about that because there is a point where if, if you know, if if the the husband's career or the wife's career are dictating most of the lifestyle decisions, the major lifestyle decisions that they make, and it keeps going year after year. At a certain point, the other person in that relationship is going to start to go, when is it my turn? Right. When is it my turn? When are you going to, when, when am I going to be the person who determines what the family does? And you know, I love that the series finale comes down to that, yeah. that choice. Yeah. And it shows, you know, how much, I mean, that is the central drama of that finale is, mm-hmm. you know, is he going to, put her before himself right and 
you know, the show really was so much about them. That's when you kind of realize that to that degree. Mm-hmm. Well, in a way, it's almost the ultimate test of of the kind of the kind of relationship that they have, which is, you know, it's based on being mutually supportive, but there is a there is an important place for self-interest in life. You know, like there are times where you have to make this decision for you and not and not be considering other people's feelings when you do it. You know, mm-hmm. there's always a point, there's many, many points in life where you have to make decisions like that, where it's like, this is going to upset a lot of people, but this is what I have to do because this is what I need. And if the person who's going to suffer the most collateral damage is your spouse, that's a major problem. Right. It's a major, major problem. And they don't shy away from that on Friday Night Lights mm-hmm. at all. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about is what the actors bring to the table in all of these situations, because obviously chemistry and, and, and just what they bring to it um, to, to bring these characters to life, I think, has a big influence on, on this. And Connie Britton and Kyle Chandler were pretty magic, um, was, just had amazing chemistry with each other. They were great. <laughs> they were great. <laughs> to the point where, um, and I'm sure you guys have heard this story, like uh, at one point they were going to drive across the country um, for some reason, like maybe driving back to L.A. from Austin, and the producers were worried they're like they're going to have an affair. They're going to have an affair. <laughs> <laughs> and, Kyle, and Kyle Chandler was married, and they were really concerned about it. And they didn't so have an affair, funny. but they were convinced because they saw it every day on set. The chemistry that they had. There was a. I read a profile of the two of them uh, right near the end of the show, and it was just a profile of the two of them as actors. And uh, Connie Britton was already there talking to the reporter, and um, when he showed up, she she looked up and brightened and said, "Hey, uh, hey, baby." as if he was her actual husband you know that's exactly the kind of thing you want to read in a story yeah yeah it's great instead of not that freaking guy again you know yeah which apparently is i i've gotten a sense from interviews with uh lauren graham from gilmore girls that her and luke uh scott patterson who plays luke don't have the best dynamic off screen where she gets along really well with christopher who plays her um her kid's yeah. husband, yeah. Her, her kid's father. So, right. yeah, it kind of takes you out of it a little bit when you find out details like that. But Yeah, yeah. And I remember <laughs> on the, you know, when I interviewed uh, uh, Timothy Oliphant on the set of Deadwood, like, 11 years ago or something, he was talking about uh, Molly Parker and how, you know, they got along so well that it was clear, like, the way he was talking, that it was something that was, like, held at bay. You know, mm-hmm. like a lot of actors, when you're playing a char- characters who are absolutely crazy about each other and you're a really good actor and you're making yourself believe it, there's always a danger that it's going to spill over into real of life. Of course. Mm-hmm. I, how could you, know. you not worry about that? Especially if it's Molly Parker. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I mean, Tammy and Eric, like, obviously Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton have played other parts, um, you know, notable parts on TV. But people will always think they're those characters. Like, uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, and I don't even think they mind. But part of it is the way they are together, but even, like, separately. Like, I remember being at some White House correspondence thing, talking to Connie Britton, and she started talking to me about, like, parenting, and I was like, I'm getting advice from Tim. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Is there, is there a TV couple uh, each of you particularly relate to most? This is a, a thing we did on the site that... Uh, kind right. of ask that question, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I wrote a long story about yeah. about mine um, because uh, so my first boyfriend, my one of my best friends, she thought that the way to like 
make this happen was that I should write a play and then cast him as the romantic lead. And so we were basically writing it like a moonlighting episode, right. um, except it was about like this fake rock band that was trying to get together. And I was the like uptight manager and he was the like rock and roll guy. And it was called Uncontested Divorce. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and after a while, and it was just, it was never going to happen. But I, I kept writing it because I was having fun writing it. And uh, and then the guy started to like me without me having to finish the play. And I was like, oh, fuck, fuck the play. I don't have time for this anymore. I have a boyfriend. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's the lead in to the fact that actually when the Wonder Years came on, the Kevin Winnie relationship actually reminded me a lot of my relationship with my first boyfriend, which was would have been in eighth grade. Wonder Years was on for me at, when I was in high school. So I was looking back at it in the same way that the show was. Um, but my first boyfriend's name was Kevin. He kind of looked like Fred Savage. And a lot of the stuff that they did on that show, I thought, was really um, – it, it captured young love and sort of the shyness of it and the tentative, tentativeness of mm-hmm. it and the way – can you ask him if he likes me? Did, did she say she likes me, likes me, or, or she likes me? Which one? You know, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff um, I, I thought was very, very on target and very much in line with my experience and also takes it seriously because I think a lot of times, you know, when kids are – 12, 13, 14 years old, you're like, oh, you're in love. Okay. But sometimes it really is very meaningful. In my case, it was. And for them, it certainly was. And so um, I always loved that about about that show. Hmm. That's a great story. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. It's hard. It's tough. I mean, I would say that, you know, my I've had relationships that are probably similar to many of the couples in these brackets, with the exception of, you know, I'm not like assassinating a, a Russian defector, or, you know, like <laughs> strangling a guy in the Meadowlands or something like that. That's but I mean, exactly like, what someone who's doing that would say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, just the day-to-day nuts and bolts, things that happen between men and women, you know, there's been a lot of equivalents in my own life. But, um, sure. but I would say, uh, you know, I had one relationship that was literally described as the, you know, you guys are the Sam and Diane of, of, film critics you know which is like not really a compliment if you think (laughs) about it um and uh, you know and i've and uh, but you know my marriage which unfortunately uh ended for reasons beyond my control uh was uh very similar to the one on friday night lights Mm. i have to say it was like yeah i mean it was great it was great uh and maybe that's why i picked them (laughs) you know see so it can be achieved it can be achieved. It can be achieved. Absolutely. And, you know, even right down to the questions of um, when is it my turn? Right. When is it my turn? Right. You know, my wife uh, was hugely supportive of me in going to pursue my career. And in fact, she's the one who encouraged me to move to New York. We probably would have stayed in Dallas if it hadn't been for her. She wanted to go to New York because she always wanted to live in New York and said, if you're a journalist, you should go to New York. Mm-hmm. I was like, eh, but then we went and I'm I'm still here 21 years later, you know. Oh. Um, but uh, but that's always that's always an issue. And that's always an issue with, you know, things like child care and where you live and all that stuff. And I just love seeing that. I love seeing that represented. And I think Jim and Pam on the office in their own way, in their own kind of goofy way, I think they represented that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should say not just they. I say they like it's the actors who are making these decisions, it's the writers who are making these decisions for the most part. But they incarnate them very honestly, I think. And mm-hmm. it's great. And, it's, and, you know, this is something I write about a lot is in, in reference to um, – so-called edgy television. A lot of times edgy television is just people being shitty to each other. 
Mm-hmm. And and the show is sort of encouraging you to get off on it. And I'm not really a prude in that way. Like, I, I, I love anti-heroic or villainous characters. I think they're interesting. And some of my favorite shows, particularly comedies, consist almost entirely of monstrously selfish people like Veep and, you know, Seinfeld and shows like that. Yeah. But. But there is something to be said for shows that represent people who are trying to be decent as often as they possibly can and not doing it in a saccharine, sugar-coated, you know, kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just making it, making it feel exciting. It's hard. It's really hard. And people reach for trauma and, and, and uh, selfishness and cruelty a lot, I think, not just because it's dramatically exciting in a superficial way because it's easier to write. Right. I think you got to bring a lot more imagination to the table to make people like Eric and Tammy Taylor fascinating week in and week out than you do uh, a love-hate relationship where it's like, are they going to sleep together? Do they like each other? Do they hate each other? It's like, that's fun, but it's not as, it's not as hard. Mm-hmm. And having, having charisma that Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton have well, yeah. certainly doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, there's a wonderful moment where they're he's sitting they're sitting they're in their daughter's room and he's sitting on the bed and like they have this really nice exchange and he kind of pats the bed like why don't you come over here and sit here baby and she she says like are you on on our daughter's bed are you out of your mind and she walks out of the <laughs> yeah. room. It's great. It's just great stuff and there's like a million moments like that. Yeah, I think in in my um analysis of the semifinal round I talked about the scene where she tells him that she's pregnant in the season finale of the first season. Yeah. Where the, um, and she's not sure how he's going to take it because it's kind of out of left field and he's dealing with trying to decide whether to take this job. And so she's very nervous. And just, it's just such a beautiful scene. Just his response uh, and, and, and the way they've just shot it where they're just very up close and, and the, the glances, like you can just, yeah. it's, it's all so palpable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, chemis- the, the, the chemistry helps a lot. The chemistry really helps a lot, and I think one of the one of the reasons, one of the num- really probably the number one reason why television couples who are basically nice people aren't interesting. It's not, uh, in my opinion, it's not because the writing is bad or the acting is bad. Although sometimes it is, a lot of times it's that the actors do not convince you as people who have the hots for each other. You know, because I think mm-hmm. ultimately most long term marriages that are really happy, there's some attraction that persists. Mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. time or at least at the very least there's a point where you look at the other person and go yeah that was hot that was cool that little thing you did with your you know you, the gesture you made with your hand or the way that you looked across the room you know people who look it's somebody that you can look at at a part like you're at a party you're on opposite sides of the room and you're talking to someone who's boring the crap out of you and then you see your significant other uh, across the room and they give you this look like yeah, well, this person's also an idiot. <laughs> you know, like if you can't have moments like that, it doesn't matter how happy you are. Right. You know, what, n- how nice you are. You right. Know? But, but the Taylors. The Taylors. The Taylors. We should drink a toast it. to the Taylors. <laughs> uh, we'd love to hear your stories about, you know, your favorite couple memories from television. If you have any particular stories to share, you can email us, as always, at tvquestions@vulture.com and who you think was left out egregiously from our bracket. Honey, I got to tell you something that I've been needing to tell you all day, and I just haven't, haven't been able to, and it's the, worst, it's the worst timing, and I'm sorry about that. And we haven't talked about this in a long time, and I just don't know how you're going to take it. Pregnant. 
What did she say? I said I'm pregnant. You're pregnant. Yeah. You're pregnant like you're gonna have a baby pregnant. Look me in the eye and tell me that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're gonna have a baby, honey. You look a little peaked. <laughs> you know that feeling when a guy you like sends you a text at two o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find you, and you've accidentally made it out like you've just got in yourself, so you have to get out of bed, drink half a bottle of wine, get in the shower, shave everything, dig out some agent provocateur business, suspend about the whole bit, and wait by the door until the buzzer goes. Open the door to him like you've almost forgotten he's coming over. Oh. Hi. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the creator, writer, and star of Amazon's Fleabag, the streaming network's latest import from the UK. It stars Phoebe as a sexually voracious, cynical, hilarious mess of a woman. She joined us in studio recently to talk about masturbating to Obama and the differences in how American and British audiences have reacted to the show. Phoebe, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So just to start for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about how this, the original idea for your show was conceived? It, it was originally a stand-up bit you did, right, that became a play at the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Festival? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, um, it was sort of stand-up, um, the first 10 minutes. A friend of mine had asked me, he's been trying to get me to do a bit of stand-up for ages, and I was like, no way am I falling into that terrifying trap because, you know, I like the security of a character <laughs> and, you know, something being, you know, written and scripted. Um, but she had um, convinced me to do this one night that was, it was basically sit-down stand-up, basically, is how she tricked me to do it. I just had That's to, so smart. I, so, oh, I'm so stupid. So I was like... She gave a sort of brief and she said it's it's a bunch of comedians telling stories sitting down. <laughs> I was like, oh, in that case, that's absolutely fine. So it was actually scripted. But um, yeah, so I had this opportunity of an audience I didn't know and probably would never see again. And the sort of security of that and this 10 minutes in this kind of stand up world that I'd never really been into storytelling world. So I just thought, oh, you know. I'm just going to throw whatever I can at this 10 minutes that I wouldn't otherwise probably be brave enough to write if I was writing it for um, a stage play or something at the time. And so I just created this character based on somebody I really wanted to play as an actress. I was I had this like feeling of wanting to play somebody really um, dark and naughty and <laughs> um, slightly outrageous, but somebody who's self-aware about it. And, um, just like, and also somebody clever. <laughs> I really wanted to write like a clever character I've been playing quite a lot of um, charming bubbly posh people for like ages and ages and ages (laughs) and um, (laughs) I just wanted to play someone with some darkness so that's kind of where the original um, idea was born and then the character started evolving um, the more I was writing it just for that first 10 minutes and it ended up with a structure of the character starts off by being very sexually candid with the audience with a kind of twinkle in her eye and she's a bit like come into my world I'll make you laugh and I'll tell you about the last couple of days of my life and try and make the audience laugh as much as possible then at the very end of that original piece was um the same ending of the of the pilot the show which is when she goes to her dad and says i think i have a horrible feeling that i'm a terrible person and that she lists all the things and um and so that the idea was to kind of twist the knife at the end 
And then I kind of just decided to expand that into a uh, into a full play. The full play, um, obviously the character, and it sounds like even the arc of the series um, had their roots in that. But um, how much of other elements of like the other characters and some of the other storylines were in that original play? Or did that all not come until you started writing the series? They pretty much all were. I had to cut out. Um, one character which really broke my heart actually from the play but it was the right decision in the end. What was the character? He was this um, old guy called Joe who um, and also I played all the characters in the play as well so <laughs> I forgot oh, wow. I was about to just launch into you know Joe you know. Yeah, you feel free. <laughs> no, 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 yeah please do. No no, no 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 I will have mercy on you. I won't uh, no. but um, yeah and he was a character who came into her cafe every um, day and she thought he was and he'd order a cup of tea and he'd just kind of hang out and he was a proper old cockney and kind of really kind of, you know he, he could be 200 years old you know but really sweet and charming and she thought that he came in she was projecting on him that he came into the cafe every day because he basically wanted to fuck her and uh, it turned out in the end that he didn't he was coming in because he was concerned for her and he was in the end the one person in the whole play that actually shows some genuine concern for her and she still tries to fuck him um, because she can't deal with somebody just being nice and that was the kind of that that basically merged into the story of the bank manager um, in the show okay. somebody who, who's just trying to offer her something uh, mm-hmm. pure um, so that kind of morphed into that but otherwise the sister relationship and the relationship with Boo and um, and how the the story is revealed and everything is all, is all very um, similar to the play Can you talk a little bit about the pacing of the show? Because there's this undercurrent of sadness that kind of sneaks up on you throughout, and it really feels reflective of how it's gaining on her. And I'm just curious how you decided to place the boo scenes, how many to put in, how much you wanted to let us in on kind of what's really going on underneath, because I thought it was so beautifully done. Oh, thank you. It did feel really delicate. I suppose... I knew I wouldn't really know until we were in the edit and we had those flashbacks. I knew that we could drop in at any time. But at the development stage, I was so frightened of it being sentimental or saccharine or it it feeling like it was manipulative in a bad way to an audience that I um, just stripped it right back. And the first rule I had for the show the whole time was that I had to know that she was damaged and in pain, but just try and hide it from the audience as much as possible as I could. And so it was all about finding just the jokes so that at the beginning of the process it was like just find jokes find situations find um, embarrassing sexual escapades find and then then it became about once I'd got those and honed those then it became about finding the little chinks or little moments that the mask could slip. One of the choices you make that um, is makes the show so interesting uh, is the fact that you talk directly to camera so much and, and break the fourth wall so often was there any point when you envisioned this that you didn't think that would be part of it? It feels like it's so intrinsic to what the show is, but I'm just wondering if you ever considered doing it in a different way. No, it absolutely had to be. Yeah, it was completely intrinsic, mainly because the main relationship in the play was the relationship between her and the audience. So it was every time that she told the audience a joke, it was to, to elicit a very specific response for, to, from them um, rather than just indulging her own need to tell her own story. It was, you know laugh with me like believe that I'm fine and then forgive me in the end basically and I knew that that was the relationship that turned me on the most writing it the idea that that could happen on tv as well and I also know that the opening of the pilot the the massive arsehole joke do you remember that one? yes okay. I just <laughs> knew in my bones that's how it had to start so before I had anything else and that was in the play but about two-thirds of the way through the play it was kind of a throwaway moment and um when when we found out that we got the commission I was just like I know it starts with the arsehole. 
<laughs> to start with. And we will move on from there, people. And everyone was like, okay, we'll start with a massive arsehole. Um, and that was completely reliant on looking to the camera as well. So. When you film these scenes looking at the camera, did you have to do a lot of takes for some of them just to kind of nail the look you were going for? Or did it kind of come naturally? I sort of felt like it came quite naturally because I was so used to it from the stage show. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd, I mean, the luxury of having, I think it was three runs of the play, just honing this character, the performance, knowing how the jokes are landing, knowing that the tiniest little eyebrow raise after like a particular type of joke would make all the world of difference was a gift. So that by the time I'd got onto onto set, especially with the jokes I'd already done in the, in the stage show, I felt pretty good about that relationship with the camera and then there were bits that were just brand new to the show that weren't in the play and I wouldn't know I hadn't necessarily always scripted when the looks would be or something so I'd Mm -hmm. just be like a total look whore I'd just be like looking at the camera (laughs) wherever it was I was just like in between lines and just testing them you know and just to see whatever my instinct was my director Harry um who was so brilliant he was like just follow your instinct the whole time if you want to look and then it just became a fun sort of game. But by the time we got in the edit, the editor told us, he's like, I'm going to put all the looks in to begin with so then we can choose the right ones. And when I first got there, my God, it was basically just like, line, look, line, look, line, look. And we were all fizzing ourselves. And it was really, it was, yeah, oh so I felt like I was total natural at it. But actually in the edit, I was like, whoa, we need to cut some of these indulgent, terrible looks out. I mean, it can be a tricky thing to do, to do like you're saying, but um, I thought you did it really, really well. I thought, and I can't imagine the show without it. Like, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I suppose because it's all about her front as well. It's about mm-hmm. being witnessed and right. being perceived in her relationship with being watched all the time. And so, like, the lipstick and the hair and the coat and the kind of out and about, and I'm totally fine, look at my hilarious life, and he's, here are my secrets. And that attitude that she has with the audience is actually quite a guarded one rather than a purely confessional one. Um, and that's where you get a lot of the humour, I think, as well. Right. And I think you've said this in, in interviews, but it also makes the audience her confidant, which sort of speaks to how much she needs someone to be that for her. Um, and it's not something that you're necessarily consciously thinking about when you're watching it, but as you, especially after you've watched the whole thing and you start kind of absorbing it. Mm. I, I mean, I, that that really spoke to me anyway. I sort of rationalised in my head that because she'd lost Boo... She'd lost the only person that understood her in the way that your best friend understands you (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and you're human, you feel safe with them. And so uh, on one level, she needed that person. Boo would be the person that she could say those jokes to or have the attitude to and and Boo would counterbalance her, her pessimism or her cynicism with her just openness and sweetness. But at the same time, yeah, she, I knew that she was trying to build up to confess to the audience And then that confession is snatched from her in the end by her sister. That was such a painful moment because we've been with your character. It just feels like such an intimate betrayal. And what was it like filming that with you and um, and Sean? Yeah, Yeah. Um, like Sean's one of those actresses that like she can just go there in moments and she's just completely the character. Whereas I'm like, where's the tear stick? So the two of us, <laughs> but it was, um, but actually with that scene, it was weird because it's the most dramatic scene in the whole thing. And actually we, we did film it right at the end. So in the, I'm so used to the rhythm of like, and then the joke or the look at the camera and mm-hmm. then the joke and the joke. And um, the uh, DOP, Tony, who had been encouraging me the whole time while he's holding the camera that I'm his friend and the camera's his friend, that my friend. And he's like, you know, we are 
um, us two against the world. You know, have to think about that. And then by the time we were shooting that scene and the camera relationship becomes really bullish and he starts chasing me a bit, he, um, um, yeah, he was like, I'm really going to bully you now. This is going to be horrible. So it was actually a complete inverse <laughs> experience from the rest of the kind of joy of doing the rest of the shoot. And it was kind of emotional as well because the director just kept saying again again oh, again oh, gosh. Um, but it was it was sad because the idea of sisters having to behave like that or having to say things like that to each other just kill me i love the sister relationship because it feels so true to that sibling dynamic um yeah you said you've got a sister right? i have so, a sister yeah. as well yeah so it felt very like i related to it a lot um what went into that decision of having her not believe her because you've seen them kind of be there for one another so much. I think it was the continuous temptation to do the opposite of what my heart says would be the right thing to do in the <laughs> drama because honestly from from a kind of storytelling point of view I just wanted to wrong foot um, the audiences as often as I could and then ideally I wanted it to be heartbreaking and human all at the same time and I think when uh, during the play and I was um, sort of workshopping it and developing it with the director, Vicky Jones, who helped me immensely through the whole thing. And I remember saying that, you know, she goes to Claire's house uh, in the play. And I said, what if she doesn't forgive her? What if she blames her? What if she's the last person who rejects Fleabag because of this terrible thing that she's done? And um, I just saw Vicky's face go, no, you can't do that. And then I was like, ha it's in, it's official. I've made Vicky Evil. cry. <laughs> a lot of that. I just test a lot of the material on poor Vicky Jones and her. <laughs> she just went through so much trauma with these characters. No, it's in. Yeah. And she's like, oh, that's sweet. I'm like, it's out, it's out. <laughs> Take it up. I wanted to ask about another scene that's a little bit lighter, and I will ask this as delicately as I can. The Obama masturbation scene. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, like, were you considering other world leaders or other celebrities? <laughs> How did it come down to President Obama? It came down to Obama. I mean, I imagine he'd be a lot of people's first choice of world leaders. I would think <laughs> so. As a biased American, <laughs> sure. I think um, in the play it came out of... Fleabag really trying it was like the, it was honestly it was like the opening of the play really it was her describing that she's in bed and she's trying to get her work done but she keeps thinking that she wants to look up porn there was a lot of porn watching in the play there wasn't really enough time to discuss that whole element of it in the um, TV show as well but so it starts off with her really wanting to watch porn trying to stop herself so she's like okay I'm going to just do some work and she can't do work because she's bored and she gets horny when she's bored and trying to do work and then she's like I'm just going to watch a movie and then she w- watches a movie with Zac Efron 17 again that movie oh, right. which she actually oh, yeah, discovers yeah. is actually quite a good movie and then um, she <laughs> and then that's kind of turning her on so she's like okay I can't I don't want to watch like a teenage Zac Efron and <laughs> it's not helping and then she's like I'm going to go watch the news and that's going to be boring and it's going to be informative it's going to make me a better person it's going to distract me and then the first thing she clicks on is Obama and that just sends her arousal through the roof and so she just goes <laughs> down <laughs> It was um, the ultimate. <laughs> What's very funny in the show? I mean, do you, do you have any idea? Does the president know that he's been featured in the show in this <laughs> oh way? God, I sort it's, of hope so and hope not in equal measure. <laughs> well, it's surprising that I ha- we haven't seen more of you know Obama as a sex figure in this way. You know, considering yeah, I think so. How attractive he's, he is. Yeah, also, <laughs> he's so so nice to talk about it. For yeah, a bit, you know? he's so attractive and he's so human and inspirational. <laughs> 
Yeah. It just seems like such a noise. I think maybe it's because he's so good. People didn't want to sort of taint yeah. his reputation. But the, I mean, after the play, oh my God, that's all women wanted to talk about. They'd come see all the, co- all <laughs> the complexities in the play would come out and everyone would go, yes, he's very moved, very moved, very moved. I'm so glad you said that about a bomb, actually. <laughs> I just feel like I just really like to talk about that with somebody. You you also talked about your character's relationship with sex and how she doesn't actually like sex itself, but she likes the feeling of being wanted. You've said how after the show came out, a lot of women kind of told you that that resonated with them. Did that surprise you? It sort of didn't. It didn't because I'd felt like that really strongly, especially in my sort of early to mid 20s. And and a lot of my friends said they they felt the same way. Um, not as extreme as Fleabag. Fleabag doesn't enjoy the feeling of it. Now, I've never really been in that situation. <laughs> I mean, but I wanted the extreme version. I wanted just to take out any you know, of the pleasure of it for Fleabag to make it more of a kind of, well, to have more of an impact as an idea. But um, I imagined and I hoped that I wasn't alone in feeling like that and my friends weren't alone in feeling like that. And I thought, I, feel, I felt like I could see it in women as well. The pressure on women to be kind of, gorgeous all the time <laughs> as well as you know on top of everything yeah. all the time and and being you know attractive and especially I think in my 20s I really felt that and then it was when I started being able to articulate that it occupied a large part of my brain I was like what am I doing why do I care so much about this and then I realized that you know I'm sat by a poster of like a girl with like her tits out like doing like an advert for gravy or something and, <laughs> and then there's like constant sort of pornographic images everywhere and just just every movie I'd watch it would be like some guy snorting something off a girl's something and I was like well maybe this is why <laughs> maybe this is why I feel like this is an important thing for a woman to be and um, so I got really angry about that and I think a lot of women feel angry about that totally because it's like you don't want to feel that way but you feel like you've been conditioned to so you don't even yeah. know how not to exactly yeah. and even when you know that's the problem I, it's hard to still turn it off even when you're aware that you've been conditioned and you shouldn't be thinking this way like I mean, the entire cosmetic industry is, is built on, on that. And, and it's like hard to not care. Yeah, you know? and it's, it's built on really clever ways of making you feel like you're not good enough all the time. So even with the campaigns that are like, feel wonderful, be empowered, have a natural look because you don't right now. And the, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, like you, could, you could be and like all, all those sorts of things that I just, but even just opening newspapers and just seeing that the, the choices of pictures that people were using for, political events I know I'm not the right person to say about that because I've used a political figure for <laughs> sexualized Obama but, um, <laughs> but I just sort of saw it everywhere just the relentless um, sexualization of women in any any situation and the fact that we're all supposed to be totally cool with that and actually just deal with it and actually kind of be above it and not have to like, say not cry about it and just go and like buy the lipstick and shut up <laughs> and uh, I was feeling like that and that's a lot a lot of great conversations with women after that being like yeah but again and yet you know then we all get up and blow dry our hair into the perfect curl again the next day <laughs> okay. I, f- I feel like this ties in too with um I mean Fleabag says at one point that she's a bad feminist and and that's a theme that kind of runs through the show and I think it's something you've talked about that you were trying to explore that that issue maybe it was something you struggled with too that you know, I'm a feminist, but am I doing this right? Um, can you talk more about how that informed the character? That scene, actually, in the um, pilot when they go and see that feminist lecture, it was actually a completely separate short play that I'd written like eight years previously. Mm. It was about two sisters who had gone to this lecture. And the twist at the end was the same twist that she says, would you have the perfect body? And everyone, if, you, if you shave five years of your life and they're like, 
Yes, of course. Of course I was. <laughs> um, and it basically is encapsulated in, in that moment, the fact that I was, I was so confused, you know, I was so confused about what was allowed, what you're allowed to think and uh, supposed to think and supposed to be and the idea of being not only a good feminist but a good sort of woman and a, uh, as well at the same time. It was around the time that feminism had become f- sort of fashionable um, and it was in Edinburgh that year there was so much stuff about um, women actually just like kicking back against pornography and the media and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, it kind of made feminism really cool. And then suddenly there were all these guys wearing feminist T-shirts and like everyone's talking about like, I'm a feminist, I'm a feminist, which is really great because it's like, okay, brilliant. It's, you know, being talked about in a way that isn't like making people yawn or, or, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, that's, that's when the whole issue became very, very confused for me. It wasn't just about equal rights and opportunities. It was about you know, how you want to look or your body shape or what your ambitions are or how you feel about other women. And I just got so confused. And so I thought I'd write Mm. a confused character rather than a character who had the answers because I wouldn't have known how to write that. (laughs) How did your writing process work? You you have the credit on every episode, but did you also have a writer's room? No, I I had... um, so Vicky Jones, who the one I tried to make cry all the time in rehearsals <laughs> to get the reaction out of, so she um, she developed a play with me, and she was um, uh, the director on the stage play, and is also just my best and most adored friend. So I just make sure she does everything. <laughs> I can do anything I can with her, and she came on board as the script editor and on the uh, on the show, and she's also a writer herself, and so she was helping me develop it and guide it and break it down from a sort of structural point of view and the ideas and the themes, but. Then I just lock myself in my small kind of room. It looks like a murderer's room. It's just got post-its of, and like with things like slutty pizza and porn and <laughs> guinea pig written on it. Like, you know, people are like, oh, they come around to look at the house. They're like, this is a terrifying room. Um, just kind of sitting there. And, but it was really sporadic as well. Like I don't think I would have been able to control a writer's room with this show because I'd just be writing spurts of things here and there and then putting them together as a puzzle. And like I said, it wasn't until the um, edit that I knew exactly the, the tone, how to mm-hmm. judge the tone. When you were kind of editing at that point, what were like the, the calculations you were making at that point? Really instinctual. Like, um, I mean, I should say as well that the towards the end of the writing process, when I was having my full on like, I hate this, I've written the biggest part of shit, I hate it, let's just burn it and never make it stage. <laughs> um, that's when Harry Bradbeer came on board, who's a director, who's also just um, an absolutely humongous brain and he helped really pull it all together and so did my producer and so together we'd kind of found that we had the same instincts about the show because we'd kind of really but towards the end of the development process so in the edit we were all in the edit and we were just completely going on gut really about what we felt like we how we wanted to leave the audience or how we wanted to like, like having that kind of funky music at the end it was not really funky like that kind of like metal music at the mm-hmm. end that actually my sister composed that and um mm. That that was really important to us that you could have those little moments of sentimentality towards the end of the show. But at the end of the day, we were like, it's a comedy. It's being sold as a comedy. We've got to leave the audience feeling like she's going to get up and carry on and she's going to be fine. And um, and that was always the aim. But the rest of the time, yeah, it was just very instinctual. So the show debuted in the UK over the summer and then obviously um, came to Amazon here in the States, uh, what, a couple months ago or a month ago. Um has have you been able to detect any differences in terms of how the British audience responds versus the American audience? 
yeah, the British audience were obsessed with the sexual element of it, like in classic kind of like pretending to be prudish, but just desperate to talk about it. <laughs> Where, you know, they were just so outraged. It was so funny. And so many of the kind of uh, press headlines were like about the show were um, how unprecedentedly filthy it was. And oh, my God, you masturbates. I can't believe it. You know, all that stuff. And um, whereas the people I was actually talking to in real life there um, weren't really having the same reaction. Whereas here, I feel like people want to talk more about the, the self-loathing of the character mm-hmm. and the kind of complexities of her her relationships. <laughs> you guys are just clearly cooler about sex. I don't know what, what's going on. <laughs> or you just don't want to talk about it at all. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, um, You've made us sound more highbrow than the Brits, which is hard for me to believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, this sort of conversation. Because there's a kind of salaciousness, I think, to the way that the uh, Brits can have been talking about it just that this the the idea that this character is outrageous and and is having an outrageous amount of sex but is that the media or is that or is that the viewers that's not the viewers no that's kind of i think that's weirdly it was sort of more the 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 press and a lot of like really really trying to get me to say it's the same as lots of other things like right like is is it the Bridget Jones for your generation. I'm like, I don't think so. I it's love so Bridget weird Jones. to me to hear those comparisons because yeah. your voice feels so distinct and it yeah. doesn't, they oh, don't. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, that's, I, that's what I had read about it going into it. And then, but mm. it, I don't see the, aside from women having voices on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking, yeah. well, I mean, I think the only women. similarity is that Bridget is is writing directly and speaking directly to the reader. I mean, th- so that's I, I guess. I mean, because I thought about that right briefly when I was watching it, but but yeah, in terms of sensibility and tone and everything else, is totally different. Yeah, I mean, with the 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 tricks of storytelling like that, I could completely um, yeah, I can completely see that. But it's, it's when they start talking about the themes or it like being like, like Fleabag's just another single girl about down. I'm like, <laughs> she's like, I'm like, I don't know, there's a lot of shit going on. It does feel like the show gets, you know, darker as it goes on. And there's one scene in particular I wanted to ask you about when uh, Olivia Coleman's character, the godmother, slaps you. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, her character is so disturbing. And that whole episode, I thought, was brilliant. And what, what was it like filming that scene? And was the slap, I noticed your cheek was kind of red afterwards. Was that like a really hard slap? <laughs> yeah, we'd done, um, <laughs> we'd done about four fake slaps when somebody kind of awkwardly just goes, <laughs> <laughs> as she's a foot away from me and kind of just like windmills past my face with her hand. And then um, uh, Olivia and I are really good friends as well. And she's, she, she is, she has a, a, a naughty wickedness kind of twinkly thing about her. And um, we both thought it at the same time. We were like, for the last shot. I was like, I'll do it. She's like, can I? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, just do it. And um, it was really funny because everyone had said, like, no, they never look, normally look as good. Weirdly, the real slaps never really look as good as the staged ones. And and then she said to me, she was like, do you really want me to go for it? And I was like, I'm going to push you really fucking hard and you're going to slap me really fucking hard. <laughs> I basically had a fight with Olivia Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but yeah she did whack me really hard but I think if it's only once and it was just so great to have that flush of red yeah. and to have the genuine reaction of me being like because even though I know it's coming it's still really shocking when you're slapped by a national treasure and, um, <laughs> and it was uh, yeah it was it was cool so do you have any plans for se- a season two have you started thinking that far ahead I have yeah I'm desperately desperately thinking about it at the moment because we're all talking about 
um, the possibilities for it. But also I'm, I had kind of, my relationship with it is, is, was that it was a one-arc story and it was the plane and I feel like I've honoured that story. Though the test I'm doing on myself at the moment is if she was real, she would still actually have to get up and live another year of her life. And yeah. like, what would that be if I had to write it? What would it be? And um, so it's, exci- it's an exciting um, challenge. But uh, yeah, scary, scary one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Phoebe. Thank you. Yes, it's been yes, great chatting you. with you guys. All right, Dad. What's going on? Oh, I'm I'm absolutely fine. Okay. I just uh Yeah. That's oh, nothing. It doesn't. It's You know, it's nearly two o'clock in the morning. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm I don't want to. I'm going to... Oh, fuck it. I have a horrible feeling that I'm a greedy, perverted, selfish, apathetic, cynical, depraved, morally bankrupt woman who can't even call herself a feminist. Well, um... You get all that from your mother. Good one. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafin. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can reach me on Twitter at Bad Zoller Sites, shockingly. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Phoebe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Gazelle. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if that was how she sounded in real life? Thanks a lot, Gazelle. <laughs>